Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's Two Wings Seminar. The Two Wings Seminar is sponsored by Holy Apostles College and Seminary and by the Faculty of Holy Apostles, and we are based on St. John Paul II's Fides et Ratio, where he stated at the very beginning that faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth, in the word, to know himself, so that, by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. Today we have with us a special treat. We have Dr. Francisco J. Romero. Dr. Romero was born and raised in Puerto Rico, Ph.D. in medieval philosophy from Marquette University, and an M.A. in theology and Christian ministry from Franciscan University in Steubenville. He is a faculty member at St. Gregory the Great Seminary in Lincoln, Nebraska, and is also a research professor at Universidad Panamericana in Guadalajara, Mexico. As a scholar, he specializes in the philosophy of religion, philosophical ethics, and in Thomas Aquinas's Arabic philosophical sources. His academic research has appeared in numerous scholarly journals and international publications. He lives in Lincoln, Nebraska with his wife and eight children. And if you look at the website at wcatradio.com slash twowings.html, you will find a bio and a link to his uh, academia.edu page. So uh, today's presentation is entitled Damascene and Aquinas on the Offering of Latria to Icons of Christ. And I'd like to thank Dr. Romero for being with us today. Welcome, Doctor. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me here. I'm uh, very excited about this, um, to talk to you about uh, the adoration of icons in St. Thomas and St. John Damascene. Now, this is, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you a paper that I uh, recently presented at a scholarly conference. So some of the, uh, some of the themes in here are, uh, they're scholarly, so um, I'll, I'll maybe pause at some points to comment on things that might not be self-evident. So, uh, so the, the paper uh, is titled uh, Damascene and Aquinas on the Offering of Latria to Icons of Christ. At least that's the last title I used at a conference. Um, introduction. Mm-hmm. One Greek father whose significant influence on St. Thomas Aquinas' philosophical and theological thought has been largely neglected in scholarship is St. John of Damascus, or St. John Damascene, who lived between 676 and 749, approximately, considered by many to, be, uh, to mark the end of the patristic era and to be, in a sense, its culmination and synthesis. His magnum opus, the Pege Gnosios, known in English as the Fountain of Knowledge, and part of which was translated into Latin under the title De Fide Orthodoxa, on the Orthodox faith, has been thought of by many as an Eastern predecessor to the later scholastic Sume. This work contains, among many other things, a robust theological response to iconoclasm, a Byzantine religious movement that vehemently opposed the use of images in Christian worship as idolatrous. 
This theological response to iconoclasm became one of St. John's major contributions to later Christian theology. In response to the nascent Islamic and Byzantine iconoclastic tendencies of his time, St. John Damascene offers a philosophical and theological defense of the use of icons or religious images and other externals in religious worship in Decide Ortodoxa, as well as in three treatises titled On Images, which are distinct from the Decide Ortodoxa. St. Thomas Aquinas, in his turn, was a direct beneficiary of Damascene, or Damascenus, as he became known in the Latin West. He makes frequent references to Decide Ortodoxa throughout his, work, throughout his own works. In fact, a quick search of the Index Domesticum reveals that, as far as the sheer number of citations in St. Thomas's corpus, John holds third rank among the Greek fathers after only Dionysius and Chrysostom. Now, I'm willing to be corrected on this. Uh, I believe uh, one scholar uh, recently mentioned that there's another father that I uh, did not in include in this list. So maybe John is a fourth place, possibly. We'll have to look at that again. Areas in which John's heavy influence on St. Thomas can be seen include Trinitarian theology, Christology, philosophy of man, and of special interest for this study, the philosophy of religion. Within this last area, one fascinating topic is that of religious worship, including issues such as the notion of adoration and the role of the body in worship, as well as the ever-controversial issue of the worship of religious images. Aquinas borrows Damascene's account of the use of externals in worship as grounded on the hylomorphic nature of human beings and on the nature of human knowledge, which begins with the senses and only thereby reaches intelligible and spiritual realities. Hence, physical religious practices such as eastward prayer, adoration, bodily postures such as bowing, kneeling, prostrations, etc., as well as the offering of sacrifices, and the use of icons or religious images are all means whereby the human mind is led by the senses to the contemplation of higher realities. After a brief review of John's background, I shall present John's influence on St. Thomas's understanding of the use of images in religious worship, and in particular, of the proper type of worship due specifically to icons of Christ. So, just to comment on that, my, my, the paper is going to have two sections, and the first one will be a review of St. John Damascene's background, so you learn a little bit more about him. And then the second section will be specifically on the question of do we owe worship to icons. <clears throat> section 1, Damascene, Melkite Theologian, Synthesis of Eastern Theology. A Greek and Arabic-speaking Syrian Christian, Mansur ibn Sarajun, as he was known before he entered religious life, was raised in Damascus in the late 7th century, shortly after the region came under Muslim Umayyad rule, in a family who held a prominent political role in their city. Before entering religious life, Mansur served as a fiscal, fiscal administrator at Damascus. He thus not only spoke Arabic, but was fully immersed in the nascent Islamic world. He then left the administrative, administrative post to become a Byzantine priest and monk in Palestine, near Jerusalem, possibly at the monastery of Marsaba, taking the, religious, uh, the Greek religious name Ioannes, which means John. 
He died in Palestine around the year 750. John's theological work must be seen as being at the crossroads of Islamic and Byzantine cultures. His career as a theologian was spent in the company of Melkite Christians, i.e. Arab Palestinian monks, living and working almost literally under the shadow of the mosques of the Dome of the Rock and of Al-Aqsa. John lived his whole life within the Umayyad Empire. He never set foot on the Byzantine Empire, but he belonged at least intellectually to it and was perhaps the greatest expositor of its theology. In this sense, he is a Byzantine theologian among the Arabs, a Melkite theologian, if you will, a Christian theologian immersed in the Arabic world, a supporter of the Christianity of the Byzantine emperor. And the word Melkite comes from the Syriac Malka, or the Arabic Malik, which both mean uh, king. So it's really the emperor that they're looking at from, uh, from the Middle East. They're, they're uh, being obedient to the Byzantine emperor and Byzantium which is now uh, Istanbul. His principal work, The Fountain of Knowledge, has a complex manuscript tradition and has come down to us in many different forms. It was originally divided by John into three parts, and the different parts eventually were published as separate works or as partial combinations of sections. Only one manuscript contains all three sections. Most manuscripts contain either only one of the three sections uh, uh, or as a standalone text. The third section, which is the one that we're most interested in, um, is titled An Exact Exposition on the Orthodox Faith. That's the one that's been translated as the Fide Orthodox. That one is historically the first systematic and comprehensive presentation of Christian theology from the perspective of Greek patristics. Although Aquinas and his contemporaries had access to a few other works by Damascene, mainly letters and homilies, only the third section from the fountain of knowledge was available to them. <clears throat> it was translated from the original Greek uh, into Latin by Burgundio of Pisa in the 12th century. By 1224, the manuscript tradition had divided Burgundio's translation into four books, corresponding to the division of the sentences of Peter Lombard. In that form, it gradually beca- became the principal means of access to the dogmatic tradition of the Greek East for the scholastics of the High Middle Ages. Modern scholars of medieval thought typically see in this work the great precursor of later scholastic Sume and the only one written in Greek. Besides the fountain of knowledge, John also wrote other dogmatic treatises, some of, the, uh, some of great importance for the development of religious thought and Byzantine theology, but which were not available in Latin translation in the 13th century. Among such works are his three treatises titled On Images, which contain one of John's most original contributions to Christian theology, his defense of the use of religious images in worship. These works were surely occasioned by the decision by the Byzantine Emperor Leo III in 727 to issue a ban on the use of images or icons in Christian worship, a ban which gave rise to the iconoclast controversy which was a Christian theological dispute in Byzantium in the 8th and 9th centuries over the use of icons or religious images. Through these treatises, John Damascene became one of the protagonists in the controversy. His fervent defense of the use of icons in worship became highly influential in the debate that culminated with the Second Council of Nicaea in the year 787. That was, that's one of the first uh, seven ecumenical councils, uh, which condemned iconoclasm as a heresy. 
The target of his works on images was Byzantine, Byzantine iconoclasm, but as scholars have suggested, uh, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this later on, the sources of his arguments also suggest the influence of local Islamic iconoclast co concerns. Although these treatises did not make it to the Latin High Middle Ages, the Defide Ortodoxa did, and that one does contain in summary form the same doctrinal content relating to religious worship. It is in this form that Aquinas will inherit and utilize the Damascene's philosophy of religion. <clears throat> a key area in Thomas's thought where we see a reception of John's philosophy of religion is the discussion on the adoration that is due to Christ. And this is um, how I introduce my second section, right, which is on, on Aquinas's reception. In the Summa Theologiae, this discussion appears within the Christological section of the Tertiopars the third part of the Summa. There he raises several important theological issues with interesting philosophical underpinnings. For example, he raises the question, inherited from the sentences of Peter Lombard, of whether Christ's humanity is deserving of the adoration of Latria. Of course, the question, this question is interesting because Christ's humanity is a creature, technically, in the sense that it's not eternal. It was created in the womb of Our Lady, right? So if it's a creature, does it deserve the adoration of Latria? See? So that's a question that was uh, very common within uh, the 13th century among the scholastics. So St. Thomas had to deal with that in the sentences, and that question naturally came to be part of the Summa. But there's other, there are other related questions there in that section of the Summa, uh, such as whether the adoration of Latria is to be given to the image of Christ, and that's the one we're most focused on here and also whether Latria is to be given to the cross of Christ, to his mother, and to the relics of the saints. As is well known, the adoration of Latria is the adoration directed ultimately to God alone. The adoration of Dulia is the kind of veneration given to the saints. Now, you might be puzzled by the language adoration of Dulia. That might sound contradictory. And the only reason it sounds contradictory is because uh, the vocabulary in Christian thought has shifted. Uh, in the Middle Ages, when they spoke of adoration, they did not refer to Latria. Adoration is not a synonym with Latria here. Adoration simply um, refers to a, to a physical posture. So think of the, the Latin ad oratio. It's, an, it's a prayer towards. So adoration or adoratio in this, in this context just means bowing down or prostrating oneself or doing a metony, which is what the Byzantines do, where they bow and cross themselves. So it's any sort of bodily inclination, and that can be offered to, obviously to God, but to other persons of, uh, who are high in honor. So, for example, Our Lady, we can, we can bow to, our, to an image of Our Lady, or uh, to a crucifix, or we even bow when we meet a bishop for example, and kiss their ring. So adoration is broader, and it, it, it's not specific to God only, and that's why they're using the language of the adoration of Dulia. Um, it's, a, it's the bowing down of honor that's not for God. So the adoration of Dulia, then, to continue reading here, uh, is the kind of adoration given to the saints. And the adoration of hyperdulia, or hyperdulia, is given to the mother of God. 
Yet it would be erroneous, or at least imprecise, to simply say that Latria is given to God and Dulia and Hyperdulia to creatures. That's what we tend to, that's what our modern contemporary Catholic vocabulary tells us, but it doesn't really fit with St. Thomas and Damascene. One of Aquinas' most basic points in this question is that Christ's humanity, though in itself created, is deserving of Latria by virtue of a typostatic union. And he tells us in the Summa, the ador- quote, the adoration of Latria is not given to Christ's humanity by reason of itself, but by reason of the divinity to which it is united, end quote. And in that same text, in the set contra, um, which is the uh, on the contrary section, where he usually quotes an authority. So in that set contra, he uh, quotes uh, Damascene directly as his authority. He says, quote, Damascene says in, says in the fourth book, um, which is uh, of, of the Defide Orthodoxa, uh, on account of the incarnation of the divine word, we adore the flesh of Christ, not for its own sake, but because the word of God is united thereto in person, end quote. You see, so we are technically adoring with Latria a creature, but not that creature in itself, but rather because that creature, the, the humanity of Christ, is hypostatically united to the person of God. Okay? So the underlying philosophical principle is that adoration, veneration, honor, and the like are aimed at a person as its ultimate terminus or term and not indirectly, uh, sorry, and only indirectly do they regard that person's nature, or in this case, natures. This doctrine reflects the teaching of the Second Council of Constantinople from 553, which defined, quote, that if anyone say that Christ is adored in two natures whereby two separate adorations are meant, one for the divine word and one for the, for the man, and thus adores Christ not adoring with one adoration the incarnate word of God together with his flesh, let him be anathema. Though it's heretical to say that Christ is, uh, Christ is owed two adorations because he has two natures. Rather, it's only one adoration because there's only one person. The person is the term or terminus of the adoration. <clears throat> Yet, surprisingly for us, the humanity of Christ is not the only creature which is in some way deserving of Latria. Other created things that deserve Latria without involving idolatry are the true cross of Christ, the actual historical instrument of Christ's passion, as well as any image or icon of Christ, including any crucifix. This claim that images of Christ are to be worshipped with Latria should not be surprising to us, for it has deep liturgical roots, which are in the back of our two authors' minds when they defend the claim. The Byzantine liturgy, of course, is shot through with metany, from the Greek metanoia, metania, uh, bowings before icons. Although the, us- the usual beginning of the hours of the orologion, that's the Byzantine breviary, as it were, the liturgy of the hours, contains a prayer, a defte proskinisomen, which calls us explicitly to bow down before Christ, in reference to the icon of Christ, the Bantokator, which has a prominent place on the iconostasis in Byzantine churches to the right side of the altar. Our Western liturgies, too, explicitly contain analogous texts and practices regarding the adoration of the cross, and it's, it's explicitly so-called in the, in the Missal, the adoration of the cross. Check your Missal for 
uh, under the Good Friday liturgy, uh, we Catholics explicitly kneel and adore the crucifix. These liturgical roots are certainly in the back of St. John's and St. Thomas's minds as they defend and explain this doctrine. St. Thomas explicitly quotes the liturgical hymn, Vexilla Regis. You can also look that up in your uh, missiles to defend the claim that the cross of Christ is deserving of the worship of Latria. Our two authors are clearly motivated uh, in, their, in the positions they're defending by a zeal for the faith that they see expressed in the respective liturgical practices. But what is the rationale for these practices? The same theological principle is at play here, as in the issue of the adoration of the humanity of Christ that we mentioned earlier, at least in an analogous way. Think about this. The humanity of Christ is adored with Latria because it is hypostatically united to the Word of God, and hence our adoration of the humanity of Christ is ultimately adoration of the divine person. Our adoration is not of the humanity considered in itself abstractly as a creature, but of the divine person whose humanity it is. Analogously, although an image is not hypostatically united to Christ, it does lead us as a sign to the adorable divine person, such that our adoration is not of the image itself, but of the person that is represented in it. St. Thomas couples this inherited theological principle with an Aristotelian psychological principle. In another said contra, he relies again on St. John for a quote by St. Basil the Great on this point. Quote, <clears throat> Basil quotes... Uh, Sorry, this is a quote within a quote. So the, the quote from the Summa. Damascene quotes Basil as saying, the honor given to an image reaches to its pro prototype, that is, the exemplar. But the exemplar itself, namely Christ, is to be adored with the adoration of Latria, therefore also his image, end quote. Here we are told that as a fact, um, the fact that the image we're told as a fact that the the mind reaches the exemplar or the uh, through the image. Okay, so let me rephrase that because I stumbled. So here we are told as a fact that the mind reaches the exemplar, but we are not given the reason why. Following the said contra, Aquinas gives us a remarkable respondeo, where he uses Aristotelian psychology as a basic premise to address how exactly it is that the honor given to the image reaches the prototype or exemplar. Quote, and this is a longer quote from the Summa, which I think is really the most uh, uh, remarkable of the text that I'm citing today. Quote, as the philosopher says in De Memoria et Reminiscentia, uh, that's a work of Aristotle called uh, On Memory and Reminiscence, or Memory and Recollection, there is a twofold movement of the mind towards an image. One indeed, towards the image itself as a certain thing, another towards the image insofar as it is the image of something else. And between these two movements, there is this difference, that the former, by which one is moved towards an image as a certain thing, is different from the movement towards the thing. Whereas the latter movement, which is towards the image as an image, is one and the same as that which is towards the thing. Thus, therefore, we must say that no reverence is shown to Christ's image as a thing, for instance, carved or painted wood, because reverence is not due to anything except to a rational creature. 
It follows, therefore, that reverence should be shown to it only insofar as it is an image of something else. Consequently, the same reverence should be shown to Christ's image as to Christ himself. Since, therefore, Christ is adored with the adoration of Latria, it follows that his image should be adored with the adoration of Latria. End quote. See, so the rest of the paper, I'm basically going to unpack that, that text. So this text, uh, which quotes the Aristotle's De Memoria, or uh, Aristotle's work on memory, um, which Aquinas is uh, obviously very, uh, very well acquainted with. Um, Aristotle in that text talks about a picture um, of an animal. So a picture painted on a board that is both a picture and a representation of an animal. So it's both a thing in itself and um, a sign or symbol or of an animal. In his commentary, uh, Aquinas wrote a commentary on this, on this work of Aristotle as well. Um, Aquinas says, Aristotle presents the example of an animal painted on a tablet, which is both a depicted animal and an image of a real animal. Although both aspects belong to the same subject, nevertheless, these aspects differ in aspect. Um, I'm sorry, this mistranslation. These aspects differ, the Latin is ratio, so it's uh, in respect. Thus, one is a consideration of, of it as a de depicted animal, the other as it is the image of a real animal. In a similar manner, <clears throat> the phantasm, that's the sensory image within our, within our brain, in a similar manner, the phantasm, which is within us, can be taken as it is something in itself or as it is a phantasm of another thing. In itself, it is to be regarded as kind of object on which the intellect speculates, or the imagination also, and as much as it pertains to the sensitive part. As it is a phantasm of another thing, which we sensed or understood previously, it is considered as an image leading to another and the principle of remembering. End quote. In other words, we can think of an image in two ways, as a thing in itself or as a sign. When we think of it as a, as a thing in itself, we do not necessarily treat it as we treat the object of which it is a sign. But when we do think of, it as, think of it as a sign, we treat it in the same way as we treat the object of which it is a sign. For example, if I show you a picture of my wife, it is entirely reasonable for me to point to the picture and say, I love her. No one would think that what I mean is that I love the picture itself as an inanimate object. <clears throat> All of my affection in this case is directed at the person of my wife, almost as though the picture were not involved. <clears throat> I do not give the picture itself a different kind of love <clears throat> from the love I give, I give my wife. To paraphrase Basil and Damascene, my attitude toward the image is directed at the exemplar. Hence, <clears throat> it matters not whether I point to the picture and say I love her, or actually point to my wife and say, I love her. It is the same love that is expressed in both cases. <clears throat> Note, too, the connection that St. Thomas makes between our use of religious images and the role of phantasms in sensation and remembering. The phantasm in the senses and in the memory leads us directly to the thing from which, from which it proceeds, working as a window to reality 
rather than as a wall that blocks our access to it. Without entering into the issue of sense intentionality and cognitive representationalism in the Middle Ages, which are um, philosophical epistemological questions, <clears throat> it is safe to say that St. Thomas was a sense realist. And for him, the phantasm in our brain, or in our imagination, for example, is in some way the form itself of the thing that we are sensing, or that we're imagining, and not merely a representation or picture of reality, such that our mind has access to reality through the phantasm, a reality somehow formally contained in the phantasm. By citing Aristotle and alluding to the role of phantasms as a way of understanding the use of religious images, St. Thomas is telling us that the icon of Christ takes us to Christ, and in a certain way is thought of by the worshiper as Christ himself the icon working as a window rather than as a wall. In fact, in the Byzantine tradition, we know that there is the, the common, uh, rather common way of, of explaining the way uh, icons work is that they are windows to heaven. You see, So they're not there to block our access. They're not there to stand uh, as a thing different from Christ, but rather they are the very windows through which we see Christ or whatever the saint depicted is. It is for this reason that Aquinas teaches that the same latria or worship is given to Christ and to images of Christ. That is to say, it matters not whether the latria given to Christ is given to him, quote-unquote, directly, which really means, as I'm imagining him, because if I'm worshiping Christ directly, that could only mean that I'm closing my eyes and I'm imagining Christ, so I'm really worshiping him through the images in my mind. Um, or... I could worship him with the aid of a physical image or, or icon. In, in both cases, we're using an image, right? So, <clears throat> but it doesn't matter which image you're using, the icon or the image in your mind alone. It is specifically the same latria being given to Christ in both images, in, in both cases. Or in the words of Aristotle and his uh, or sorry, in the words of Aquinas in the, his commentary on Aristotle, it is one and the same movement of the mind that is involved in both. In any case, the worship given does not have as its terminus or as its term the image in itself as a wooden thing, or even in the case of the image in the mind uh, as a psychological entity, but rather that worship continues on and is ultimately aimed, aimed at Christ himself via the image the image only being a sign that leads the mind to Christ. <clears throat> Given this doctrine on the adoration of images, Aquinas has now the trouble of explaining why the Old Testament prohibition of worshiping images no longer applies to us. He cannot simply claim that the prohibition is only of adoring images and that Christians only venerate them, as many Catholic apologists today would argue. Rather, he's committed to the doctrine that images of Christ are deserving of Latria. His response focuses instead on the twofold movement of the mind towards an image, affirming that in Old Testament idolatry, the adoration of images was adoration of the gods of the Gentiles and not of the true God. And since the coming of Christ, we can now adore the true God-made man as depicted in images. So the great difference then between the Jude, uh, between Judea, Judaism and Christianity on this issue is that 
the strictly incorporeal God of the Old Testament can neither be represented nor worshipped in imagery. But this is no longer the case with God incarnate. This analysis of the use of images in worship, which Aquinas shares not only with Damascene, but also with other prominent 13th century sources, such as Albert, St. Albert the Great, St. Bonaventure, um, Alexander of Hales, etc., is no longer standard within modern Catholic theology. Later Catholic theologians, such as Bellarmine, Bossuet, and Petavius, taught that the proper attitude due to religious images is not that of Latria, but the veneration along but a veneration along the lines of Dulia. <clears throat> and this latter opinion has become a commonplace in contemporary Catholic theology, catechesis, and apologetics. And yet, inconsistently, Damascene and Aquinas are still cited frequently on the issue. One example is in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, which states, and I'll give you the text number, this is uh, number 2132 of the Catechism. Uh, it says, quote, the honor paid to sacred images is a respectful veneration, and the Latin says, reverens veneratio, not the adoration or adoratio due to God alone. And right after making this statement, the Catechism immediately quotes St. Thomas for support. Quote St. Thomas saying, Quote, worship is not rendered to images as considered in themselves as things, but insofar as they are images leading to God incarnate. Now, the movement directed to an image, insofar as it is an image, does not stop at the image itself, but, but tends towards that of which it is an image. End quote. So that's straight from St. Thomas. And the quote in the Catechism ends here. However, if we go to St. Thomas himself and look for that text, we see that he says a little bit more. Right after that text, he says, hence, latria, or, latria or, and the virtue of religion are not diversified by the fact that religious worship is paid to the images of Christ. Clearly, the text of St. Thomas quoted by the Catechism is at least in tension with the Catechism's own teaching in the preceding line, since the basic idea in the quote is that the same latria is given to the image of Christ as to Christ himself. Now, some Thomas and commentators have used the language of relative latria to explain how our worship of images of Christ is not idolatry. They say we give to images of Christ a relative latria and to Christ himself an absolute latria. Though somewhat useful and certainly a venerable language, uh, it is potentially misleading to say this, as it could be taken to mean that there are two kinds of latria that are being given to two different things, to images and to Christ himself. This would run afoul of the principle that latria is not differentiated by the fact that the worship is offered to the image or to Christ. As we said, it is one single movement of the mind that goes through the image to Christ. So it's not two different latrias, just one. The image is indeed being given latria in relation to Christ who is the terminus, the term of the one movement of Latria. But, as St. Thomas says, it is one movement of the mind that tends to both the image and to Christ. <clears throat> Conclusion. Animated by a zeal for the faith as expressed in the religious practices of, of their respective liturgical traditions, both St. John Damascene and St. Thomas Aquinas develop a theory of the type of worship due to images of Christ. 
Both authors make the bold claim that images of Christ are deserving of the worship of Latria. For John, this is not so because these images are creatures, but because they are images of God made man and the worship given to an image is directed to the prototype of the image. Aquinas develops this thinking through Aristotelian psychology, explaining that the movement of the mind towards an image is the same as the movement of the mind to the thing of which it is an image. Hence, it matters not whether Christ is worshipped directly or through an image. What is being worshipped in the image is not a creature, but God himself as represented by the image, the latter being only a sign that leads the mind to God. And that's the end of the paper. Thank you very much, Dr. Romero, for that excellent presentation. Well, thank you. We had a caller, um, Dr. Michaela Ferry uh, from Italy, uh, but it's gotten a little bit late for her now, so she had to leave the line, but she expressed her uh, thanks uh, in an email to me uh, for your having uh, made this presentation. And you've inspired her, actually, to make a presentation of her own uh, mm -hmm. in the next few weeks. So uh, we already have a good outcome uh, from your talk. <laughs> nice. So uh, Dr. Michaela Ferry is the uh, new director of the Bachelor of Arts in Sacred Art program at Holy Apostles College and Seminary. Wonderful. So um, now, uh, she will likely email you uh, in order to collaborate with you uh, a little bit uh, as she prepares her own talk. So. Okay, fantastic. Look forward to that. Uh, well, so I have a, a couple of questions. Uh, one, um, I know uh, from my own history classes and uh, from my study of church history uh, that after the Reformation, uh, there was a movement uh, in some of the Protestant denominations that formed against the use of sacred art at all. And an, an iconoclasm kind of fell over their uh, worship and religious practices. Is there a reason that would have been caused by the Reformation or uh, caused by something that would have caused them to deviate uh, from the veneration of divine images in the way that you have described? Well, I think that, that stems ultimately from a, uh, a reading, reading the Old Testament prohibition uh, in one's own terms. So, you know, the private interpretation of Scripture uh, not in line with uh, the magisterium and with tradition. So, um, you know, in the Old Testament, it, we are told we are not uh, to fashion any graven images, right? Uh, so that there's a strict prohibition of, of the use of uh, religious images. And as they, uh, but as St. Thomas explains, that prohibition uh, was due to the fact that God, at that time, before the Incarnation, could not... Um, he was strictly incorporeal. He had not become man, so that there was no physical anything in God to represent. But once God becomes uh, incarnate, then then that prohibition no longer applies, or at least doesn't apply in the same way. Um, and that's what what these uh, reformers uh, misunderstood. Um, they took the Old Testament prohibition to be uh, still applicable in the same way as in the Old Testament. So I, I believe that's also the root cause of the of the Byzantine iconoclasm that uh, St. John Damascene was dealing with. Sure. Um, and, and perhaps even Islam, um, you know, which is inspired in, in the Old Testament um, in itself. So the um, Islamic iconoclasm is also perhaps inspired by that uh, by, by that reading, uh, I, I guess a literal, uh, un, 
uh, unnuanced reading of the Old Testament prohibition. Oh, sure. Well, and that explains then um, uh, all the ornate calligraphy uh, that resulted in the mosque um, right. and in their uh, religious settings. Uh, rather than their use of images to depict, uh, they used uh, words. Um, right. Which, uh, in themselves, words are images. Uh, they're not pictorial, but they are signs of, of their meanings. So they work just like an icon. You know, we, we say in America, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So, um, right. so these words are themselves, uh, they have the same function psychologically as an image. So they're really not getting, um, not getting entirely away from worshiping images, <laughs> at least, uh, you know, in a, in a broader sense. Um, because that when they depict the word Allah, which means just means God in Arabic, right? Um, they're taking that, using that as a sign to raise their minds to God. So, you know, it's it's pretty much the same thing we're doing with a with an icon. Sure. Well, and um, uh, we have uh, photographs, we have pictographs, uh, and we have chirographs, and uh, and Arabic writing would be chirographic. So, I mean, you still have the visual. Um, representation. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the Quran, uh, from my experience uh, having lived among the Muslims for a couple of years, um, what they told me was that the Quran was uh, the closest uh, thing uh, to God's manifestation, his actual manifestation on earth, um, because the Quran is the uh, material writing through the ink and through the paper and whatever of God's um, of God's presence as he spoke directly through Gabriel to uh, Muhammad. So uh, in that sense, the Quran is uh, almost akin to the Eucharist, I would say. Hmm. So, I mean, they've, they've got this uh, the document, uh, they've got the um, text that they then uh, display uh, within the, um, the churches, and they say, okay, well, this is not uh, the worship of graven images, this is not iconography this is uh, uh, in keeping with our um, traditional iconoclasm mm -hmm. but that that makes a lot of sense the uh, distinction there between uh, the old and the new testament uh, in the new testament uh, we catholics would consider is the fulfillment of the old testament and uh, therefore once it's fulfilled um, those uh, proscriptions in the old testament didn't necessarily have to remain as christ said uh, not one iota would disappear until they've been fulfilled and he was its fulfillment. Right. Now, interestingly, uh, in Judaism, they they did not interpret um, the prohibition in the way that the Muslims have. They themselves, uh, at least in the temple, they had depictions of, not of God, but they had uh, images of uh, angels and such. So there was quite a bit of uh, sacred art, I guess you could call it, in uh, in the Jewish temple. Um, so that that itself is an indication that that uh, the proper understanding of the Old Testament prohibition is, is not uh, the radical way in which Islam has done it. Oh wow! So, um, but in the, uh, that would have informed um, the early Christians, I imagine, because they would have been worshiping in those temples. Right. Exactly. So you had just mentioned that there were uh, depictions of angels. Uh, would the difference have been the Jews would not have venerated the angels 
Is it a question right. of veneration or adoration? Right. In that case, it's it's quite explicit that they were not to adore these angels. Um, and the way uh, St. Thomas explains it, he, he uses uh, uh, Maimonides as, as a source for this. He says the there wasn't they didn't uh, they didn't depict one angel but two and they were they were uh, standing at either side of uh, the holy of holies and in such a way that the worshiper well in in this case it would be the high priest wouldn't be uh, inclined to to confuse these two angels for the one true God you see so there's there, because there was two of them you could. Uh, it was uh, evident that that was not God, and therefore, it was not. Uh, he, they were not to be adored. On the other hand, in between the two, there was a raised. I think it was a raised altar, and that there was nothing on it, um, because it, that is uh, that was the the place of the um, of the one true God who is invisible. So, so the whole. Uh, I say. I say the. Mystagogy of the temple uh, was there to lead us or lead the mind of the worshiper to the one true invisible God, despite there being uh, other images there, such as the angels. This makes sense in Islam, uh, if you recall the satanic verses, uh, where uh, Muhammad um, had originally uh, thought that he had heard from the archangel Gabriel um, that there were three birds that should be worshipped as well or should be adored or should be venerated. Uh, and he quickly retracted those um, once he realized uh, what he had done. Um, those birds may have been uh, part of the, uh, the graven images that were in the Kaaba at the time that he uh, cleansed the Kaaba and destroyed the sacred art, the religious art, from, uh, from, I guess, the gods and goddesses from around the region. Interesting. Uh, but uh, w what we do have at Holy Apostles is we have um, a Bachelor of Arts in Sacred Art. And I know that in one of the uh, courses, uh, we have a partnership with um, Enders Island uh, down south of uh, Mystic, Connecticut. And uh, they teach students how to write icons. And they consider, um, they, they call it writing rather than uh, drawing, what kind of advice would you give for uh, iconographers? I think that St. Thomas's uh, teaching, which is also St. John's, is uh, to, to see these icons as, as windows, right? Windows to heaven, as they say. Sure. When, when we are depicting these saints, and especially Christ, they're, they're not there... Um, it's not. It's not that the icon itself stands in the way of the worshiper and his relationship with Christ, but rather, it it's supposed to take. It's supposed to be in a, in a way transparent. You know, the, the theologians would call this the transparency of the image, um, sure. somewhat akin to the way in which our our um, the images in our own mind. Like for example, if I imagine Christ, um, or let's say I well, what I have right right in front of me is is my laptop. Uh, as I'm reading the paper, so um, I have the laptop in front of me, but the image uh, in my mind is what I'm more directly seeing. See, so I'm I'm not um, I'm my mind is not directly accessing the computer; it's doing it by means of this mental image of a computer. 
that my that you know I'm receiving it through my eyes and and uh, I'm also with the other senses I'm sensing the texture of the keyboard and etc. So I'm forming an image in my mind, and then my that image is transparent in a sense. It takes us to the laptop to reality whatever the reality be, if I look out the window, there's a tree, and I'm seeing the tree through this mental image of a tree. But that mental image is not standing in the way as an obstacle to my access of the tree, but rather it is precisely that means whereby I am able to reach the tree. Uh, it, 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 and that's why theologians say it's the, the, the icon is transparent in the sense uh, in the sense that it, it leads us to Christ and it doesn't stand in the way, much like that image in the mind uh, is transparent and it doesn't stand in the way, but rather it makes it possible. So, so think of those icons as images, uh, rather as as, uh, as windows, right? As transparent windows that take us directly to that which is depicted in them. So an icon that is not depicting Christ, but an icon that's predict, uh, depicting, say, St. Rita or... Um or someone else would have the same kind of, uh, 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 to use the same word again, iconographic value. Yeah, it, it still has the same transparency. Um, the difference being that it, it's not owed uh, Latria because it would be a saint. So what the, the icon is, is owed whatever the saint depicted is owed. If it is an icon of Christ, then it's owed Latria. If it's an icon of Our Lady, then it's owed Hyperdulia. And if it's an icon of, of any other saint, then it would be Odulia. But in, in all three cases, uh, the icon is transparent. It is a window that takes us to uh, the saint or to our Lord. That's a very clear statement, and that's very helpful for uh, those who are even returning to the church and find themselves surrounded by icons or statues. And, um, and they wonder what it is that they're to do with this. I know that... Uh, my Protestant friends, uh, some of them would um, uh, would say that uh, our surrounding ourselves with um, with statues and venerating saints would seem to be um, something that would be inappropriate in a worship situation. But to distinguish among those three types of uh, of uh, what is owed, if you will, uh, is useful. It's, it's very helpful, even yeah. even for Catholics who are used to doing that to be able to organize in their mind exactly what it is that they're doing. Yeah, and, and I think I would like to reiterate from the paper the point that many people, uh, Catholic apologists today, would, would explain our use of uh, images in a way that differs from the way Aquinas uh, and, and Damascene explain them. Um, they, St. Saint, Saint Thomas and, uh, and St. John, while well, their teaching has cleared us, but... Um, the modern teaching would be that whatever the icon, even of Christ, the icon is, is owed veneration, whereas Christ, Christ himself is owed latria, right, or, or proper worship. And I, I'm not sure that that's theologically consistent, especially if we're looking at these icons as, as these transparent windows to the object depicted, right, to the person depicted. Um, if, if it is an icon of Christ then it wouldn't make sense that the icon deserves veneration because the person in the icon is, is, is God, so he deserves latria, right? right. Um, only vener only the, the icons of, of the saints would, would be 
deserving veneration, not because they're icons, but because they take us to the saints. Christina Terry. We have a caller. All right. Yes. Yes, hi. This is Christina Terry. Um, I just had a, um, wanted to see if you could um, speak a little bit about whether, uh, like, Manichaeism has any impact on whether our, I mean, our views of use of icons or physical objects to connect um, more mythically with God. Yeah, good. Uh, so Manichaeism, uh, is it related to our uh, our use of icons and, and especially to our, uh, I guess, our phobias sometimes, of our, our, our worries that we are doing something wrong in venerating icons or worshiping icons? I think the answer is yes. I, uh, of course, Manichaeism is a very, very old heresy. Uh, it's associated to Gnosticism, which is the oldest heresy. Uh, it even has pre-Christian roots. And uh, Gnosticism and Manichaeism, um, among other things, uh, claimed that the body was evil, right? Um, so um, they, they view as, as matter as intrinsically evil, and therefore anything that's uh, sensible or, or, or bodily or, or related to the body is in some way associated with evil. So, of course, that, that heresy has been long condemned by the church, uh, but it seems never to go away. <laughs> there, there's always been some tendency in the church, um, in and out of the church, uh, to, to viewing matter as evil or viewing uh, sense, uh, uh, say the more sensory aspect of our devotions of our religion uh, as being somehow bad or imperfect or, um, you know, to be abandoned in favor of something more spiritual. And that, that tendency is understandable, but, but it just keeps, uh, it keeps rearing its head and uh, making us uh, think or at least uh, have tendencies, um, at, to have tendencies away from, from healthy, a healthy view of the body. So, I think the, the veneration and adoration of icons as we're, we're defending here uh, is definitely one of those things that um, our Manichaean tendencies, which never go away, uh, you know, will, will make us uncomfortable with. So, yeah, I, I, I think that that's precisely uh, at the root of iconoclasm. Iconoclasm is uh, motivated by these Manichaean tendencies not necessarily Manichaean, but uh, let's see, let's say at least Platonic. The notion that you know the, the body is something else; it's not the spirit, which is what is really good. Um, so the, these tendencies have been around, and they've um, they've motivated a lot of these uh, iconoclast um, movements. So very good, and, and Saint Thomas especially, I think, was a champion of uh, the truth against uh, the Manichees. He he had a, an epiphany one day uh, of how how he was going to defeat the Manichees. Uh, he was uh, wrapped in speculation at a banquet with with uh, his cousin uh, King Saint Louis, and um, <clears throat> he all of a sudden banged on the table and said, "That's how we're going to get the Manichees." And no one really knows what he was thinking exactly about, but we can see in his writings a very strong. Um, uh, doctrinal foundation 
that counters the Manichaean tendency. So if you if you inform yourself by the writings of St. Thomas, you, you will not be able to say the body is bad, sensory devotion is a bad thing, the veneration of icons is, is a bad thing. You'll never be able to say that because St. Thomas is so strongly opposed to this Manichaean tendency to view the be- the, the body as bad. So... So certainly there is, there is a relationship here between the two, although, of course, to make it clear, Manichaeism was a lot older than uh, any of these uh, authors or, or uh, expressions. And, and I think what, what we're dealing with is not so much Manichaeism uh, in a clear-cut doctrinal way, but with tendencies that are uh, perhaps left over from, from these Manichaean, uh, early Manichaean doctrines. I hope that somewhat answers your question. Well, thank you, caller, for uh, for asking that question, uh, if you're still listening. And thank you, Dr. Romero, for your presentation today. We are out of time, uh, having come to the end of the hour. So uh, to our listening audience, we've had with us uh, Dr. Romero, Francisco Romero, who has provided us with an understanding of icons and iconography and uh, iconoclasm and the proper respect that is due uh, to uh, the various kinds of images that we use as windows to open our minds and our understanding to uh, the mysteries of Christ and to the grace that God will uh, freely uh, bestows upon all of us. So uh, until next time, this has been the Two Wings Seminar, and uh, we will look forward to seeing you again this time next week. God bless you all, and have a great day. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.